Accessibility is an often overlooked aspect of all types of web development, and e-commerce is no exception. Today we'll talk about what web accessibility means, sort out the alphabet soup of acronyms, guidelines, and legislation, and come up with the best way to develop a strategy for success. Welcome to Skewed. I'm Steven Osentoski. And I'm Anand Naki. Let's demystify digital commerce. Steven, the internet is really bad about web accessibility. Yeah, really, really bad. <laughs> a recent study of the top 1 million sites found compliance issues with over 98% of all sites and an average of 61 accessibility errors per homepage. And as the internet is becoming more complex and more dynamic and more widespread, companies are neglecting accessibility best practices and standard guidelines and the overall experience is really suffering. In addition to the experiences of those living with disabilities, accessibility issues opens up businesses to liability and litigation, which leads to costly judgments and attorney fees. So Anando, let's talk first a little bit about what, what web accessibility really is and the connection between uh, these terms of accessibility and how it relates to omnichannel. Yeah, so omnichannel is definitely one of those buzzwords. I'm sure everyone in the e-commerce industry has heard of it. It kind of means something different to every person, um, depending on context and the business that you're talking about. Um, but to me, there really is, an, is a connection between accessibility and omnichannel. So to me, omnichannel is usually a buzzword, as you said. Um, to me, it's more of how you blend the online and offline experience. So the first time I visit a website, uh, until the purchase point if I go to pick it up in store or um, go visit the store uh, for shopping as well. Those two experiences should be as closely blended and seamless from one uh, online experience to the brick and mortar experience. Yeah, and the essence of Omnichannel is that it allows businesses to cater to their customers wherever and whenever they want to shop, which I think is what a lot of companies focus on. But I think what's often neglected is the however they want to shop. Um, and accessibility is um, one of the areas where we talk about how customers are interacting with the website, how customers are shopping online. And it's something that, uh, that a lot of people don't think about when they're putting together an omni-channel experience for their business. Yeah, I mean, even taking it to the simplest level, entering a shop um, for, for someone in a wheelchair, you need that, that shop to be accessible at the brick and mortar and accessibility online. There are various guidelines there. Uh, to be met for those customers as well. Yeah, that's a really great way of thinking about it in terms of like the real world analog for this web accessibility. Um, and we'll get more into the guidelines and the regulations, um, but um, really thinking about accessibility in all formats and uh, all different ways, how customers experience a business and the services and products that they have to offer. Yeah, and, and, and there's a number of disabilities and we'll cover them here um, that really should be taken into consideration when thinking about accessibility on your website. Uh, just a couple to primarily focus on would be visual impairment and auditory disabilities. So uh, Anando, talk to me a little bit about how those disabilities impact the usage of a website. Yeah, so there's a lot of different types of visual impairments, um, but they all impact how customers use the internet. So you have 
partial to total blindness as well as color blindness and all three of those and there's different types of all three of those um, really impact how customers um, are using websites um, various forms and extents of deafness prevent users from experiencing auditory cues um, including music and audio from videos that might play as part of a website and then there's other physical disabilities that make it difficult for customers to use computer hardware, including mice and keyboards and other stuff like that, uh, the same way um, that the majority of the population might use them. Um, beyond these physical disabilities, there's also cognitive disabilities, such as dyslexia, um, that make it difficult for users to interpret poorly designed layouts and read important text as well. Um, so as we get into what sorts of tools people use to help navigate the internet, if they do uh, experience these sorts of disabilities. Um, they're what, what are called assistive technologies, and they help people with and actually without disabilities use the internet more efficiently. Um, so screen readers are the most commonly used form of assistive technology, and common applications, um, NVDA, that's a free screen reader for Windows users. JAWS is a paid screen reader for Macs and PCs. And then there's also VoiceOver, which is built into Mac OS. Um, I don't want to wade too far into the often bitter Mac versus PC debate, <laughs> but Apple does uh, has put uh, significant emphasis on building accessible technology into their devices and software for phones and tablets as well as computers. Yeah, and I think a key thing to point out here is not one assistive technology here is best for all scenarios, right? You listed a, a fair number of different disabilities that could be tested for and not one of these tools will cover all of them. So finding which tools work best within your teams and which combination will cover most disabilities are, you know, that's really the recipe that you should be going for in a, um, a fully compliant website. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So um, one of the interesting things too, is that some people with um, who might have some uh, form of disability won't use an assistive, assistive technology, whether because of a stigma associated with that technology or that technology doesn't best fit their needs. And so um, they rely on um, sort of the website or web experience unaltered. Um, another interesting thing is that there's people with no discernible disabilities who still use these assistive technologies. I think one of the uh, interesting examples um, that I've found of this is that there's people who will take news articles or long form articles and they'll just start a screen reader on it and kind of treat it as a podcast in the background while they're yeah. doing other things on their computer. And so there's a lot of use cases for these technologies that extend beyond disabilities, but um, the issues um, are uh, affect both um, both groups equally. Sure. All right, let's talk about some, some relevant legislation and standards. I know there's a lot of different ones out there, ADA, WCAG. There's lots of different terms and, and formats that you could uh, be following. So can you start us off with ADA, Ananda? Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, this as uh, um, put as simply as we can. There's a lot of acronyms, um, a lot of jargon in this area, so we'll try and spell it all out. But I think um, for especially for our uh, U.S.-based listeners, uh, the ADA is a really important one. So that's the American Disabilities Act. It was passed in 1991. Um, the text of this law is, to be perfectly honest, it's outdated for the purpose of the Internet. Um, so... Um, it was written at a time when the internet was not widespread, and so it doesn't specifically address the internet. 
Um, but really, any legislation would become quickly outdated if it mandated specific rules for accessibility due to how quickly web-based technology is changing. Um, so the one thing that the ADA does specify very broadly and generally is that businesses must make a quote-unquote reasonable accommodation for purposes for people with disabilities. So uh, what the Department of Justice and the court system have done with that language of reasonable accommodation is that they've clarified that accessibility, A, extends to the internet, uh, and they use high-level high language to regulate. Um, so usually what that kind of boils down to is um, WCAG, some version of that with double A level of conformance. And I know, Stephen, you'll talk about what that, what that means. Uh, but just to add on to that, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives actually very recently at the beginning of October in 2020 uh, introduced bipartisan legislation called the Online Accessibility Act. And what that is is that it's an amendment to the ADA. Um, so this would put into place requirements um, right now as it's drafted. It would require WCAG 2.0 AA conformance. Um, it also implements penalties for noncompliance and also provisions for how civil litigation against a company can proceed. Um, so one of the things that we've seen, uh, especially in the last um, several years, is that there have been a huge number of lawsuits against well large companies and well-established companies um, suing them for websites that aren't um, that, that aren't accessible for people with disabilities and um, what this uh, what the online accessibility act would do is essentially make it um, so that those lawsuits cannot proceed until a business has sort of failed to do everything that the OAA um, requires them to do but uh, as I mentioned, this is just a, a, a bill that has been proposed in the House of Representatives, so obviously would need to be passed by the House and the Senate, and then signed by the President, obviously, to become to become law. Um, so I know we've mentioned a little bit about the WCAG. Stephen, can you walk us through um, the the WCAG in general? Yeah. So that's a that's a it's a set of global web standards built by the World Wide Web Consortium. That's W3C, and they provide guidelines for entities related to the usage of their site by people living with a variety of disabilities. So uh, this the first version goes all the way back to 1999. They've had a few iterations of that. They've The W3C has released two major versions, version 1 and 2, and then sub, several subversions, 2.0, 2.1, and 2.2, which is set to come uh, in 2021. So... Uh, the versions are backwards compatible. So version 2.1 in this case uh, also is an iteration of 2.0. It includes everything in 2.0 as well as additional uh, guidelines in 2.1 and 2.2 will include both of the previous versions as well. Um, other thing to note, W3C does have a related guideline. Um, that's the WAI-ARIA and that stands for the Web Accessibility Initiative, Accessible Rich Internet Applications. And this is a specification that goes a little bit beyond WCAG, um, where it's more formed towards dynamic content on your website. So if you think about widgets, um, drag and drop functionality, alert boxes, those sorts of things, that's what this additional guideline uh, was created to make. And it's possible for your website to be perfectly WCAG 2.0 compliant without taking into account uh, W-A-I-A-R-I-A, and that's just based on what the content of your website is. So more of a thing to be aware of uh, than anything else. Um, 
and then in Nando, I know there's there's a pretty rich history behind uh, WCAG. It goes back a lot longer than I thought uh, it would have. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, version one was announced in 1999, and this is really, I mean, if you think back to 99, that was really sort of the infancy of of the internet, especially as it relates to how most people were using it. Mm-hmm. Um, but 1.0 established basic principles like text alternatives, so alt text, and guidance on how to prioritize clarity and simplicity. And then for about nine years, there were no major updates to WCAG. And if you think about what the internet was like in 1999 versus when 2.0 was released in 2008, that's a there were a ton of changes in, in those nine years. So um, WCAG 2.0 was released in 2008. And what it did, it introduced the concept of the four principles of accessible design, which is uh, the acronym is POUR, P-O-U-R. So P for perceivable, O for operable, U for understandable, R for robust. So um, what that really does is that it allows uh, W3C and WCAG in general um, to create success criteria for those four principles so that everything is kind of governed by this high-level standard um, with then specific success criteria for each uh, each principle. And then um, later, um, about 10 years later, uh, 2.1 was released in 2018. Uh, it modernized WCAG and also um, provided specific guidelines for mobile development. So in 2008, there was, n- there was a little bit of mobile development for sure, um, but it, the the internet from a mobile perspective came a long way in those 10 years. Uh, and so um, there were more specific guidelines around mobile development. And as you mentioned in the beginning of 2021, um, 2.2 is targeted for, um, for release. Um, so we'll see exactly what that includes, but I would imagine that that will start to look at um, rich internet applications, single page apps, um, and more of the technology that you see um, built with uh, JavaScript frameworks like React and Angular and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, so let's talk about different conformance levels. You mentioned WCAG 2.0, AA, for example. There's three different conformance levels, single A, double A, or triple A. Triple A is the most detailed and specific conformance level. Most jurisdictions require double A compliance, where single A you can it can be seen more as uh, the lowest grade, kind of the uh, bare minimum level of conformance there. So uh, as I said, most jurisdictions uh, require double A compliance of those three levels. Yeah, so as we look at like what different countries and different jurisdictions require, this is where it starts to get really complicated because um, depending on where you are, uh, they might require different things. So um, as we mentioned, the US uh, has the ADA, uh, it doesn't specifically mention the WCAG, but the government has adopted parts of it, and uh, the courts have um, seemed to agree that WCAG 2.0 AA is, is the standard, but again, there's no formality behind that. Uh, in the European Union, uh, they formally adopted WCAG 2.1 AA. Um, in the UK, um, after Brexit, it wasn't entirely clear, but they have adopted WCAG as well, um, 2.1 AA. Um, in Canada, uh, it's, uh, it's also vague. They, um, they have actually differing um, conformance level requirements by province. Uh, so Ontario, uh, the country itself requires 2.0, but Ontario requires 2.1. Um, and then 
Um, Australia is also another country where federally it's vague, um, but South Australia uh, requires 2.1 AA. Um, so that, that really, there is a high level of variance as you go country by country, and it does make it really confusing for companies um, as they are looking to make their sites compliant. And that's, that's a really big issue um, because one of the things, and I, I know that you've experienced this with your client work, but I've also experienced this through, through my work, is that companies are looking to do something in a standard way and they're looking to do one thing that's compliant across the board. So one of the things that I think we really wanna talk about is what is the approach to compliance and how do we create a strategy around becoming compliant with accessibility. By now, uh, we kind of hope that we have impressed the importance of being accessibility compliant, um, but now we want to get into how we do that. So one of our recommendations is that you pick the most strict standard and achieve compliance to that. So generally, WCAG 2.x, um, in this case, 2.1 um, AA is a pretty good bet. Uh, when 2.2 comes out, um, that would be important to consider um, because uh, that uh, there might be countries and jurisdictions that start to adopt 2.2 um, as that becomes a little bit more mature. Um, the other thing is to consider authenticated versus guest experiences. A lot of times companies will try and take shortcuts around this where uh, they'll try and limit their liability by making their uh, the parts of their site that are available to everyone by making those compliant, but not really uh, being overly concerned about guest experiences. And what this does, this really makes makes it difficult for your IT teams and development teams to keep up with what parts of the site are supposed to be compliant, what parts of the site are not supposed to be compliant. And it also doesn't save you completely um, from from the liability and um, uh, and and the risk of of litigation. So. We, we would recommend um, that while it might be tempting uh, to do one thing for your public uh, facing pages and a different thing uh, for your privately facing pages, uh, I would recommend just don't do that. Just be compliant for all of your pages um, as, a, as a general rule. Yeah, and, and I think you also have to consider the back office tools. Um, I mean, think of B2B, there's, there's lots of uh, business users that will be interacting with not just what is uh, customer facing, but people within uh, the organization that needs to have access to those uh, behind the scenes pages and, and tools that really help drive that business overall. So accessibility is, is not just for customers, you know, it has to be, you have to take that into consideration for who's interacting with those uh, non-customer facing technologies as well. So this can be a little bit difficult because these are generally a little bit tied to uh, whatever technology you're using. But, um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything to do in that case. You know, there are still areas where you customize uh, back office technologies for your specific business case. Doing what you can in those uh, widgets or those customizations um, can always be made as compliant as possible. And then for, for companies who maybe have a little bit more sway to uh, discuss with the technology partners uh, themselves for their uh, whatever their e-commerce platform they're using, consider raising uh, those accessibility issues within those business tools with uh, your partners and, and stressing the importance there. You know, larger companies, people who are actually using the uh, platform, they should have a lot of sway uh, in, in enabling that for the future. And then and then building on top of that is is having internal standards for accessibility as well. So the, the work to make your website accessibility 
accessible, uh, it's much easier and cheaper to do when it's included from the outset of a new project. So when you think about if you have your website in development for two years and then you decide to make it compliant, everything that you've done up until that point was not built with compliancy in mind. That's a lot of rework to ensure that all of that existing development, all those existing tools, customization, whatever you had done, uh, there's likely rework there to properly make it as accessible as possible. It, it's also a hard sell to uh, to leadership and executive level um, folks that uh, you essentially aren't, you're going to take time to build something that doesn't introduce new functionality or generate new revenue that you just need to go back and make it compliant. A lot of times the question is asked, how come we didn't do this from the very beginning? Obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think we're here to say, do this from the very beginning. It makes it way easier in the future. Yeah. And you think about not only the development aspect of that, but testing as well. If you are introducing new test scripts and new um, automation scripts for the QA to run, and this is something that should be, again, tested from the start, as you said, and it adds a lot more work if that's not the initial standard, right? If you're never testing for accessibility up front, and then you're bringing in accessibility later on, and it's not part of the core uh, test scripts or um, you know manual testing that's being run, again, that's extra time that wasn't accounted for that really should have been from the start of the development process and, and your overall team should have awareness of that. So there's lots of dangers of, of uh, realizing that you have not been properly accounting for accessibility early on in that process. For sure. And from a testing perspective, this is really where you want your QA team or whoever's doing uh, doing that testing to immerse themselves in the perspectives and the context of someone who's using an assistive technology to use your website. So they should be using screen readers and familiar with different types of screen readers and how they work. Just like when you test when you test a site and you expect your customers could be using Chrome or Safari or Firefox or Internet Explorer or Edge. You test with all of those browsers. Well, Essentially, these screen readers are like another browser, and you should test um, using JAWS and NVDA and VoiceOver to make sure that, uh, that your site works as expected through those channels as well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting where I've brought up a couple tools and tested them, tested them out. There's some that show your site in uh, the instance of a user who's colorblind, so it, it makes it... Uh, puts you in the perspective a little bit of a user who may have a disability that uh, can be a little bit more difficult for you to really put yourself in their in their footsteps there. And um, I mean, especially for a screen reader, uh, say you have someone who's visually impaired or, or, or has blindness, trying to test that while closing your eyes, for example, this is just one example, but that can be a really you know simple way on your end to, again, put yourself in the user's footsteps and really test how your accessibility does for a user in that case. So that's obviously an extra step there, but there are tools that kind of do that for you to help put you in the perspective of the users who will be using that tool. Yeah, there's this really cool um, Chrome extension called Chrome Lens. And what it'll do with a simple toggle, it can show you what your site looks like if you have uh, varying degrees of partial blindness, and then also different forms of color blindness. And it tells you what percentage of the population has this specific visual impairment, um, which is, is useful. But also, like you, this is really about 
building inclusive experiences. And you want to be inclusive of everyone, regardless of um, whatever disability they, they may have. And also, um, even if they just use assistive technology because it's part of their, their workflow. Um, so um, to me, it really boils down to just being inclusive around uh, the experiences that you're building. When we yeah. look at ways to uh, to build a strategy and a team around this, um, there should be a person or a small group of people who are responsible for keeping up to date with compliance issues and really champion the cause of accessibility internally uh, because there, there needs to be someone who's really advocating for building these rich, inclusive experiences. Um, and th that group or that person can make sure the testing and uh, development includes all use cases and not just the most convenient. I think something that we've seen as a persistent issue in technology, and this is something we talked about in our very first episode on artificial intelligence, is that uh, it's technology tends to be built and tested by a really narrow slice of society. And that often leads to inherent biases that work their way um, into, into the technology and become codified through that process. So there's actually a Stanford study that found that voice assistants have more trouble understanding black voices than they do white voices. And a lot of facial recognition programs have been found to have issues recognizing darker skin um, than it does recognizing lighter skin. Um, so these are sort of examples of how um, just biases that we don't think about. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not intentional. It's not something that um, that's planned out or anything, but they do work them, uh, work their way into, um, into technology, and uh, it's oftentimes a pretty significant blind spot for uh, for development teams. Yeah, and we we covered that in episode one uh, with a couple of members of the Avatria team uh, on artificial intelligence and and kind of how facial recognition and, and biases have played into that as well. So uh, it's an interesting listen if you want to learn a little bit more about that as well. Yeah. So let's start to dive into. Not not in excruciating detail, but uh, some common issues that we see uh, in um, on on websites that we've seen worked on in the past. Um, Stephen, you want to walk through some of those issues? Yeah, I'll try to keep it high level. There's lots more uh, beyond what I'll describe here, but these are common ones that are often uh, easy to um, just include. Like I said, in, in your development guidelines and things that are often overlooked. So first, text and images. So. Uh, text that is part of an image is not readable by a screen reader. So this should obviously be avoided. The, the content component for the offending image in this case should be updated to contain a text attribute and the look and feel of that text should be managed uh, in the style sheets. So search engines tend to penalize sites that have uh, text and images. So uh, fixing this issue will also improve SEO. So not only accessibility, but your SEO will improve by uh, including that as well. Right. Um, so like search engines like Google are actually going to penalize you in this case uh, for not taking an accessible approach. It's maybe right. not their intent to penalize um, people for, for not taking an accessible approach, but that is the end result. Yeah. And you'll find that a lot of these these areas that I cover here, by implementing them, you're really improving your site design overall. Like like it's it's being not only accessible, but it improves not only your SEO, but also your code organization. There's lots of benefits just beyond that. Um, so second one here, tab order. So individuals with uh, visual impairment rely on screen readers, as we've discussed, and, and 
they navigate through a page and tab order. So uh, a quick example would be a cart where you have three different line items. If the tab order goes through each of the product's names and then each of the product's descriptions and then the quantities and then the prices, that's not a really logical way to go through that cart, right? The tab order should be going through the product name, product number, description, quantity, and then price. So I should get all the info of that product before moving on to the next line item. And that's just something that should apply to uh, all of the elements in your page. Tab order uh, should navigate in a logical order. So uh, again, keeping an eye on your shopping cards, other product lists, uh, it should navigate through those elements um, in a way that, that should make sense. And again, this is uh, gonna be custom to whatever pages you have, but shopping cart is, is a good example of you know, what a logical tab order should be in that sense. Yeah, for um, sure. And and the key here is is logical. It is a little bit subjective here. This WCAG doesn't specify that you need to go from this element to this element to this element to this next element. Um, but think about how you use the site. And that's another thing where I think a lot of times when we, we get in the mode of, of testing, we, we look at each thing discreetly rather than how different parts of a page interact with each other um, or how different pages in a site interact with each other. And so when we think about it logically in that flow, I think that helps inform our testing specifically for accessibility, but also in general um, to make sure that it is logical and it is um, it is following how people use the site. And I think that's a big part that's often overlooked, that uh, we should observe how people are, are using the site, whether that's through focus groups um, or looking at, um, at analytics tools that help um, maybe record sessions or something like that um, to see. We think that our site might be used this way, but actually when we look at it, customers are using it a different way. And that not only improves our accessibility, you, to your point, it improves the user experience as a whole. Yeah, exactly. And, and a good way, at least in our example of, of the tab order, um, tables versus divs. So instead of putting every element inside of a div, tables are a really easy way to represent tabular data. So each row in your table would be an item in the shopping cart, right? And that's that helps facilitate the appropriate tab order without having to make specific updates to update that tab order. So you don't have to um, specify that the, the the item being within a table itself or having that table format will help facilitate that. And again, that's just good design to have it in a table uh, for items that are well represented uh, by a table structure. Um, next one would be ARIA landmarks. So these are uh, essentially page element metadata that tell a screen reader what the element is. Uh, so these can be used to indicate banners, uh, form elements, navigation, and uh, other landmarks on the page. So there's more information that can be found on the W3C uh, general principles for ARIA landmarks. But in general, this is just a way to better describe maybe a custom element, uh, a banner, whatever the content is. And it provides you that opportunity um, to supply that information um, for a customer there. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that W3C has um, a, a website dedicated to ARIA uh, landmarks. Uh, they actually have a lot of really good resources uh, for WCAG as well, um, where they have like a filterable checklist with the success criteria for every requirement that's part of, for example, WCAG 2.1 
um, and any of the conformance levels. Um, so there's a lot of good resources online directly from the source, uh, which I think is always the best way to, to do this. So, I mean, this podcast is an example, but there's lots of sites out there that have accessibility checklists or give you a primer on accessibility. And I think those are great to get people um, to really get their feet wet in um, sort of the terminology of accessibility and why it's important. But when it comes to becoming compliant, um, go directly to the source, go directly to the W3C site um, and see what they have to say about specific issues. And then if you need more help beyond what you can find online, um, think about engaging um, a a firm that that specializes in accessibility um, to help audit your site. Sure. Moving to the next one here, alt text. So this is similar to ARIA ARIA landmarks. Uh, Alt text indicates to screen readers what an image or other element depicts. So uh, when the alt text is missing, it might be skipped over or generically described by a screen reader. So uh, that alt text should contain enough information to describe the image in a few words. So doing your best to uh, transcribe whatever this image is uh, conveying, um, that helps the screen reader out and obviously would help the customer out in that scenario as well. Yeah, and Stephen, um, when you say generically describe, it really is very, very generic. It'll, it'll read out, this is an image. And then if there's no alt text, that's all the context that people are going to get. So right. not, not very helpful unless you have um, that alt text. Yeah. And then moving on, icons as buttons. So when buttons or other clickable elements uh, do not have text associated to them, it, again, it's difficult for screen readers to determine uh, what their purpose is. Um, so buttons without text should use the appropriate metadata, and that's either the ARIA landmarks uh, and alt text, in order to facilitate the screen reader experience. Um, you know, and, and this is one of those scenarios where, similar to the alt text for images, if, if it's just reading out, you know, this is a button and there's no nothing there to describe it, then that could be a barrier for someone, um, yeah. you know, signing up for a newsletter, whatever that button functionality could be. It could block them for a serious uh, click path throughout the website. Yeah. And then one of the areas where this is really important is with responsive development. A lot of times what happens is that as the viewport gets smaller, uh, designers and developers tend to drop the text that describes a specific button um, and just leave the icon um, that that might look good, um, but it can be hard to um, to determine. And honestly, it's not just hard to determine for people using a screen reader, for example. It could be hard to determine where uh, maybe when you designed it, uh, you thought that this icon is a really clear example, um, but there are cases that are not as clear cut as a magnifying glass means search. And to you, it might be uh, it might be apparent, um, but to your customers, it might not be. So at the very least, uh, having that alt text so that when you hover over it, you see what it is, um, it, it would be helpful. Sure. And then finally, text color contrast. And you found a, a really cool tool for this, uh, accessible-colors.com. Um, but colorblindness is a, a common visual impairment that should be considered when thinking about accessibility. Um, without having proper color contrast on your website, people with colorblindness you know, may not be able to differentiate between page elements. Graphical data such as charts uh, that are often color-coded um, should either use colorblind-friendly methods for distinguishing data or have a colorblindness toggle that switches from a standard view to a colorblind accessible view. And that could be adding labels to the chart. Um, you know, d- there are different ways to, uh, to address that. So there are a number of online tools uh, that I mentioned on uh, accessible colors 
accessible-colors.com um, that help explore kind of those different um, those different alternatives that you can provide there. Yeah, and this is also something that goes beyond web development. I remember um, very early in my career, uh, right out of college, I put together a PowerPoint presentation with some graphs on something. And um, I didn't realize that my PM uh, actually was colorblind. It, never came up it's not something he ever mentioned he wasn't hiding it but it never mentioned it and afterwards he told me he's like yeah these i'm sure these graphs look great to you but i can't understand them and i was like really how why not and he's like well i'm, I'm colorblind and i can't distinguish the colors that you use for the different series on this graph and like i didn't even really think about it that way um, and so from there on out i made sure to use like every series used a different shape to represent the data um, so that it um, it, it was uh, understandable for, for everyone, really getting back to that idea of inclusive design where you are including everyone um, regardless of how they um, interpret data. Yeah, and I think like recently just coming more, becoming more uh, aware of different accessibility technologies and implementing it on uh, different client work, I think it really addresses that, that thought that you had where, oh, wow, I didn't even think about this and you know there there are different disabilities that require different solutions and i think that's the key to having a a good uh a properly compliant uh website is is just having the the proper technology in the back of your head and, and building it as a part of your process you know not letting it just the awareness of it itself i think lends itself a lot to your future design and um, you know, how you structure your code and really your entire process for web development, um, you know, obviously including e-commerce. Yeah. So as we kind of start to wrap this up, I mean, Stephen and I have really just scratched the surface of accessibility. There are a ton of things to consider uh, when you are trying to make your site accessible. And when you think about why this is important, it's not just protecting, it's not just to protect your, your company from a lawsuit. It's not just to check a box that yes, our site is compliant. It's really about building things that everyone can use. And that's the ultimate goal. Like we, you would never build a website that um, intentionally or unintentionally excludes um, a certain part of the, the, the population. Um, so we really need to start thinking about accessibility as part of that and thinking about how are people using this site uh, outside of ways um, that I might expect, um, because that um, that could represent a, a really big issue. And so, I mean, these are these are just a few reasons of why accessibility is important, but it really is about inclusivity. And I know that I sound like a broken record talking about inclusive design, inclusive design, inclusive design, but it really does boil down to that, that we want to make experiences and um, build stuff for, for everyone. Yeah, and, and I think moving forward, if, if you're thinking of, okay, what compliance level, I think the quickest path is just choose a, a level and do it, right? I mean, we saw with WCAG 2.0, 2.1, moving into the future 2.2, those are iterative. So picking a compliance level and, and focusing on it, allotting some time for that, that'll you know, try to at least future-proof by overshooting those minimum requirements. You know, if, if AA is um, what's, what's required, then shoot for AAA and, uh, you'll be in a better spot for, for more of your customers in the future. And then when future, uh, future guidelines are, um, are released, you're more likely to be in a better spot for those requirements moving forward. 
Yeah. And then if you still have questions or this is a lot to digest, reach out to us, um, reach out to, to an accessibility expert um, and, and get their get their opinion on your site, have them do an audit, um, start to unpack some of the things that, um, that you might need to change uh, in order to become compliant, in order to create an experience for everyone. So thanks everyone for listening to Skewed. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or feedback that you have, any accessibility guidelines that you want to talk about, um, you know, let us know. Yeah, and feel free to email us. Uh, our email address is hello at skewedpodcast.com. That's hello at skuedpodcast.com. Subscribe to Skewed wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.